So this is today. Today is yesterday and tomorrow is also today. You traveled through time to the present. Yes. Yeah, I don't think you get how time travel works. It's like we're stuck. You know, like a, like a needle on a scratch record. I wake up every day right here, right in Punxsutawney, and it's always February 2nd. It's one of those infinite time loop situations you might have heard about. It's a thing where the same day keeps happening. Time. in a damn time loop or something? Well, it's Groundhog Day, again, and that must mean that I'm Professor Robert E.G. Black here to discuss Groundhog Day. Again. Still. Always. Paul Hannum, The Magic of Groundhog Day. Quote, Phil has to deal with eternal endeavors such as conquering fear, fighting inner demons, and finding true love. Yet simultaneously, Phil's predicament symbolizes the more commonplace contradictions and tensions of the modern Western lifestyle, the contrast between big city and small town life, the challenge of finding meaning in a consumer society, and the emptiness of celebrity. There are a number of potential philosophical interpretations of Groundhog Day. The most obvious one is Friedrich Nietzsche's concept of eternal recurrence, which maintains that events will recur again and again for eternity. He wonders how we would live if we knew that we were going to live our same lives again. As one of the first existentialists, Nietzsche proposed that the greatest challenge facing human beings was the search for meaning. Existentialists, including Jean-Paul Sartre and Albert Camus, believed that the purpose of life was to overcome fear and isolation and discover our own meaning and philosophy for living, like Phil has to in the movie. Essentially, it is down to us as individuals to choose how to live our lives. End quote. And I don't know about you, but it feels harder every day. I mean, on the one hand, I get older and closer to whatever end I will have, but also, every disturbing nuance of political and social upheaval and violence and apathy is visible on social media in the palm of my hand at any time of day. Which would be inherently and obviously negative, except those fighting against injustice and discrimination and hate are also there in my hand at the same time. And my autistic ADHD mind loves it and hates it, is overwhelmed and energized by it. And since, arguably, since before I can remember it, my special interest has been film. Stories made to be consumed and consumed time and time again. They change, I change, you can't step into the same river twice and all that. Because what good is reality when the majority of people not only don't know you exist, but probably wouldn't care about you if they did? See, I'm a pessimistic cynic, a hopeful idealist, and all things in between, because for all my years I have taken in all these stories, more than 7,000 films, innumerable television shows, thousands of comic books, novels, short stories, poems, D&D sessions, story after story after story, and growing up I was told that the world would be ending soon, in Bible class, in church, and on the nightly news, and the warmth of a good story was the best defense against the Cold War and the colder hearts of far too many people out there. After the title page, the abstract, the tables of contents, and a couple quotations, my master's thesis began like this, quote, This process frightens me. For more than two years now, every day I have put my voice into my blog, The Groundhog Day Project, in hopes of an audience, in hopes of an exorcism, in hopes of a transformation, in hopes of a purpose. Yet I sit down to here explore that venture and to explain how what it has and hasn't done for me can be extrapolated into some prescription for others. Or is it just a still-damaged self hoping for empathy, sympathy, pity? 
I am reminded of a line from G.K. Chesterton that I quoted, Day 721, Live and Die on This Day, 23rd July 2015. Quote, The principle is this, that in everything worth having, even in every pleasure, there is a point of pain or tedium that must be survived, so that the pleasure may revive and endure. The joy of battle comes after the first fear of death. The joy of reading Virgil comes after the bore of learning him. The glow of the sea bather comes after the icy shock of the sea bath. And the success of the marriage comes after the failure of the honeymoon. All human vows, laws, and contracts are so many ways of surviving with success this breaking point, this instant of potential surrender. End quote. Ellis and Bachner, 2003, tell us, Honest autoethnographic exploration generates lots of fears and doubts and emotional pain. It is never contained and always messy. Anderson, 2006, tells us that autoethnographers should openly discuss changes in their beliefs and relationships over the course of fieldwork, thus vividly revealing themselves as people grappling with issues relevant to membership and participation in fluid rather than static social worlds. Starting something new, the thesis that follows, just like the blog more than two years ago, should be scary. It's a lonely journey into the unknown, and however small an audience, that audience will pick you apart eventually, but you must keep writing, because what other option is there? To be silent? End quote. And the process is frightening. Life is frightening. And this, here, now, is my fieldwork. I watch movies, and for years I have picked them apart in my blog, in these Movies by Minutes podcasts, in conversation, because picking apart a story is the same as picking apart everyday life. So we must try to keep it simple. Most of life is just junk, right? It's, it's filler. And then there's these moments when all the randomness turns into something perfect. It's like life's dropping all the bullshit just for a second to show us how amazing it could be all the time if it wanted to. Hmm. I don't know. I think maybe we're supposed to become like better people. No, I honestly don't even know how that could be possible. Never think about it. We must miss so many of them. All those tiny perfect things are just poof, gone, lost forever. But not today. That is a disturbingly inspirational idea, Mark. It's a perfect day. You couldn't plan a day like this. Well, you can. It just takes an awful lot of work. Time. last revision is what counts, apparently. What if we found them all? All the perfect things in this one town, in this one day, we could collect them. My time loop of the week is a film called The Fair. Aside from a brief montage of passengers near the end, the film is two actors in a car, the occasional voices over the radio. Harris drives through the desert at night toward a growing electrical storm. His passenger is Penny who he picks up seemingly in the middle of nowhere, and her destination, though specific, Elm and River Drive, is also in the middle of nowhere. They get 20 minutes together, and at the end of that 20 minutes, she disappears, he resets his taxi's meter, and the cycle begins again. For most of its 83-minute runtime, that's all the film is. At first he doesn't quite realize he's in a loop, then he starts to remember things, and then the two of them start to really enjoy their time together, through conversation, through physical contact, and through memory. I won't linger on it, or spoil its resolutions, but I will say that it plays like an extended Twilight Zone episode, and honestly would have been a damn near brilliant one at that, had it been streamlined and cut to that kind of length. It came out in 2018, but with the drone shots of desert and the simple staging of people in car, 
It feels like a pandemic movie. Minimal cast, barely any locations. And watching it again to talk about it here, I imagined it would make a fairly interesting stage play. It's a simple tale of people's need for connection, and the randomness and intimacy of conversation plays out beautifully. The Fair Day 3, The Second Resumption, Interior, Bedroom, Morning The alarm sounds and Phil awakens to the same experience as the morning before, and the morning before. And in a different bedroom in a different city, was the morning before that much different for Phil, really? Trapped in Punxsutawney, trapped in Pittsburgh, trapped as Phil? The location change is not the point, except in as much as a move or a vacation can alter your perspective just enough that you might see your everyday life from the outside and see its faults, its facets, its flaws, its features, and feel the urge to fix it. And I mean both of the opposing definitions of fix. You can see what is worth keeping, and what is worth repairing or replacing or removing. On your average day, you might not really see it. What Hannum calls the Groundhog Day effect, the, quote, daily grind of endlessly repetitive tasks, mind-numbing encounters with the same people, and meaningless activities and conversations that keeps us feeling stuck and powerless to change, end quote. Then put your little hand in mine, the song says. There ain't no hill or mountain we can't climb. The operable word there being we. But before I got you, babe, let us backtrack to the beginning of the minute, Phil's attempt at power from his seat of powerlessness. As minute 26 begins, Phil has just been on the phone with the local operator. The long-distance lines are down. Sitting cross-legged on his bed in the Cherry Street Inn in Punxsutawney, pencil behind his ear, he has hung up the phone and returned it to its place on the lower space of the bedside table. And I wonder, and I don't know if I've wondered this before in hundreds of viewings, why did he have that pencil anyway? I mean, the story demands its presence, but it could have been there by the alarm clock and he could pick it up before breaking it. He has no notepad before him. There is no indication that he had anything to write down. But the thing is, it matters that he pulls it from behind his ear, like a casual thought plucked from his brain, an inquiry into the forces at work that put him in this situation. But then, what is this situation? I suggested just last episode that time loop stories, at least when they aren't just trying to be clever, are about characters who are stuck in ruts in their lives, or who are inherently flawed people who need to be backed into a corner in order to bother to make themselves better. Phil is both. I'm both! Stuck in a rut of his own making because he has been treading the same path over and over again. He is a womanizer, he is a liar, he is a sarcastic asshole. He has a great job, but he thinks he is too good for it. And I'd wager he has no real friends. Maybe a few similar assholes from work he might go to a bar with some nights. But then isn't he just scoping the crowd for a woman he can spend an empty night with to fill the void at his center? I mean... What is Ned but a reminder for Phil that he has not kept in touch with anyone from his high school days back in Cleveland, because all Phil knows how to do is to run forward, ever forward, leaving a wake of insults and one-night stands behind him. Babe, I got you, babe. I got you, babe. I got you, babe. Punxsutawney isn't trapping Phil in anything but a comfortable embrace, reminding him of his humanity reminding him that sometimes you can care about other people and not be in it just for yourself. But I get ahead of myself again. My time loop. Every minute of this film is every other minute of this film. Every moment is every other moment. Phil drives off the cliff at the rock quarry. Phil jumps off the tower at the Pennsylvanian Hotel. Phil steps in front of the no-stop-moving moving van. Phil drops the toaster into the bathtub as a family eats breakfast next to a banner that reads Unselfishness. Phil seduces Nancy, and Lorraine, and Tess, and Rita, and however many others. Phil breaks the pencil to prove, not that he has power exactly, but that he has anything. That he is alive. 
that this looping of time is real and he can still exist within it. And he doesn't look at himself in the mirror when he throws water in his face yesterday or the day before and probably all the days before that in his own apartment back in Pittsburgh because he doesn't like the person he sees looking back at him. Trapped in Pittsburgh, trapped in Punxsutawney, trapped in Phil. He pauses as he goes to set the pencil by the alarm clock. And just setting it there, when it was not there this morning or yesterday, would be enough. But Phil has to go further. Passivity is not the way for Mama Connor's kid. Even as he lets go of the pencil, he cannot take his hand away. Everything is wrong. Everything is broken. Just a few days ago, or maybe a lifetime ago, the UN Security Council reaffirmed the commitment to Lebanon. Six months ago, Iraq invaded Kuwait. And it's more than two weeks since the withdrawal deadline and aerial bombing is well underway. Ground operations have begun. There's a cholera outbreak in Peru. But everything is just fine because Disney got 3,500 kids from different ethnic backgrounds to perform with the new kids on the block at the Super Bowl. And Dances with Wolves just won the Golden Globe for Best Drama. And Bush referred to a new world order and a state of union that sounds like a good idea. Diverse nations drawn together in common cause to achieve the universal aspirations of mankind. Peace and security. Freedom and the rule of law. But he was talking about war. Justifiable, perhaps, but war nonetheless. And Phil is stuck in Pittsburgh, and the Today Show has been giving Willard Scott a national platform for years, and Phil wants more, wants more, wants more, because he grew up in America, where bigger is better, and Pittsburgh is small time, and Phil is big time. Otherwise, how does he justify the way he treats people every single day? He has to be better than them, because the alternative is that he is a hateful, spiteful, unquenchable void that makes the lives of everyone around him harder. And Punxsutawney wants to give him a hug. And tell him that he can be, should be, is better than that. This is not your fault. I got you, babe. I got you, babe. I got you, babe. It's not your fault. I got you, babe. It's not your fault. I got you, babe. He picks the pencil back up, looks around, but there's no Alan Funt in the next room, no cameras in Phil's reality watching him in this moment, just camera operator Michael Stone or maybe DP John Bailey pointing a camera Phil can't see, and maybe still photographer Lewis Goldman is there, camera ready, but Phil can't see that one either. Phil is alone. He has only himself for company. But he won't play this game until he knows it's a game, and then, for a while, he will play to win rather than just to be sure everyone playing is having a good time. He snaps the pencil. He sets one piece of it, definitively, on the table in front of the alarm clock. He sets the other half, less forcefully, on top of the alarm clock. His eyes are on the floor, the mess of his stuff perhaps, memorizing the positions, but as usual, Ramus is more concerned with reaction than that being reacted to. What Phil sees is only for Phil to know. Phil shifts from sitting to lying down as he pulls up the covers. Propping himself up on one elbow, maybe he's thinking he'll just stay awake for another two hours and the pencil break won't matter because 6am will come and joke's on them for trying to get one over on him. But what's more concerning? That a day will repeat once, and only once, and Phil learned nothing from it? Or that tomorrow will be the same day over again and the universe is paying attention to him, singularly, and that means he matters? But then why can't he look at himself in the mirror? Why is it only complete strangers and forgotten folks from high school who have a kind word for him? 
the clock switches to 405. A 405 error code means the method is not allowed. We don't see Phil turn out the lamp. We don't see Phil fall asleep. We cut to the clock, filling the screen. 5.59. Click. 6 a.m. And Sonny Bono starts singing again. Cut to Phil, abruptly sitting up in his bed. And it's too much. He knows this isn't a replay of yesterday's show or a DJ who can't get enough of that song. It's February 2nd again, and Phil's life has been about getting ahead, and now there's nothing to get ahead of. But he remembers the pencil. A glimmer of hope. Maybe it is a replay. Or a DJ who loves Sonny and Cher too much. He turns toward the table, and the camera moves with him as he desperately looks for his broken pencil. But the table is the same as it was the day before. Alarm clock, a small vase of flowers, a lamp with a leaf motif, a couple of chocolates. The pencil he finds only because he leans further over to reach the shelf below. The pencil, whole, is by the phone. He gulps. He looks around. Punxsutawney is singing to him, but he can't hear it. He starts to scramble out of bed and we cut to interior, hallway, morning. And there's man in hallway again. Pleasant as always, but Phil isn't here for pleasant. Morning! Phil, scarf on, swerves already. Off to see the groundhog? and passes by and down the main stairs, and man in hallway is hardly faced. Cut to the landing by the stained glass. Phil hurries past the window, one glove on, forcing the other one on as he turns to head to the ground floor. The script specifies interior, breakfast room, continuous, but Phil doesn't even enter that room. He just rushes by. Still, Florence Lancaster, ever-attentive bed and breakfast host, notices and tries to engage. Oh, did you sleep well, mister? Phil's about to leave the room quickly. Before we get to that, I thought I'd tell you about something that's in the second revision of the script. It's a little overkill and kind of makes the timeline a little strange. Because see, Phil wakes up in the morning to the DJs, right? And he rushes out of the room after the what is this Miami Beach line. Cut to exterior Cherry Street later. Phil hurries toward the bed and breakfast carrying two gallon buckets of paint and a couple of big bags from a hardware store. Interior, bed and breakfast. Continuous. Phil enters and passes Mrs. Lancaster in the breakfast room. Mrs. Lancaster, painting something, Mr. Connors? Phil, I'm conducting an experiment. Interior, Phil's room, later. Phil enters and dumps the bags on the bed. Out fall a couple of big paintbrushes, a small sledgehammer, a handsaw, a crowbar, plastic goggles, and assorted other tools. He puts on the goggles grabs a hammer and some nails, and starts nailing the door shut. Cut to. Exterior. Corridor. Later. Mrs. Lancaster and several other guests are gathered in the hall outside Phil's room. Which doesn't make sense in the actual set, since Phil's room is up its own little staircase. But whatever. Listening at the door, and looking very worried. Loud music is playing inside the room. From inside the room, they hear the sound of loud hammering, wood splintering, and glass breaking. Interior, Phil's room, continuous. Phil has demolished just about all the furniture and woodwork in the room. He rips off the last of the wooden moldings with the crowbar, then crosses to the mirror over the demolished sink. Phil stands there, staring at his image in the mirror. Which is interesting, because in the movie he doesn't look at himself. Trying to figure out what's happening to him. He starts breathing heavier, as if gathering courage. Then, just when we think he's going to cut off his ear or something... He raises an electric barber clipper and shaves a bald stripe up the middle of his head. He studies his new look for a moment, then smashes the mirror with his sledgehammer. 
Then he opens the cans of paint, dips the two big brushes into the cans, and starts slapping bright red paint onto the walls, madly, feverishly, splashing himself and everything else in the room with it. As a final touch, he grabs the bed pillows and rips them open, then shakes them all around the room, creating a storm of feathers. Finally, Phil falls exhausted on the bed. From outside, we can hear outraged hotel employees pounding on the door. We pan over to the clock radio, the only undamaged object in the room. Feathers drift down past the face of the clock, which reads 5.59 a.m. The time changes to 6, the radio clicks on, and I Got You Babe starts playing as we pan back to Phil, sleeping on the bed. He opens his eyes, jumps out of bed, and looks around. No paint, no feathers, no damage. Everything is as clean and tidy as the day he checked in. He races over to the unbroken mirror and looks at himself. His hair is completely restored, as if it had never been shaved. Which, aside from being overkill, Pencil solves it so much more simply. It also gives us an entire day of destruction with no sign of what Rita or Larry did. We don't need it. But back to the film. Exterior, Cherry Street, continuous. Phil bursts out the front door, and in this moment, if you haven't noticed before, you should see that the entrance has two doors, with a small space between, and the two stone pillars on either side of the front stairs are mismatched, and it has always amused me that the production didn't try to paint the left one, which I guess had been recently redone, to match the other. But I'm sure the average viewer would never notice that, so they made the right choice. And it is only now that I notice that above the stairs, the soffit edge of the roof has the address written out in cursive lettering rather than numerals. 344. The real address of the building, 344 Fremont Street, Woodstock, Illinois. Phil hurries down the stairs, toward camera, toward us, toward the story, and the camera tracks toward him, because though Phil may not realize it, we are in this together. Thank you for listening. The Groundhog Day Project Minute by Minute is just one part of an existential trilogy of podcasts. Tune in every Tuesday for Minutia Ex Machina, every Wednesday for more Groundhog Day, and every Thursday for Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Minute. And you can follow all three shows in one feed. Just search an existential trilogy. Follow this show on Twitter at Groundhog Day MXM and on Instagram and Facebook at Groundhog Day Project. This has been a production of Lemming Drop Studio. You can find links to more at lemmingdrops.com or join the Facebook group Lemming Drops Studio Tour. Also, you can support all my shows at patreon.com slash lemmingdrops. Until next time. Through time. What is wrong in the end which never comes? Or which comes again and again? Laugh, laugh, laughing. Like waves. Since the Big Bang set everything in motion, everything that happens in this universe has to be the way it is. Man, are you hungry? I haven't eaten since later this afternoon. Particles unfolding the way they're destined to. How do you sleep at night? You've never seen Groundhog Day? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, Groundhog Day is not a documentary.